Turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. going to look again at this commandment, verse 16, as the Lord is giving here to His people the Decalogue, the ten words, coming to the end of these ten words. We have one more after this one to go. Verse 16 The Lord says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Just as a reminder, a singular verb, while he's addressing certainly the nation from the top of the mountain, this is singling everyone out. This command is directed to every individual. Bear false witness suggests a legal context. It is used that way. A person who stands on the witness stand, as it were, answering questions asked by the judge or the attorney And then against refers to the disadvantage. What is spoken is false, but it's spoken to the disadvantage of a neighbor. Now, that's not to say that you could not lie in other ways, but with regard to this commandment, it has to do with bringing some harm to your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? As we look at that term, it could be someone who just lives near you. It could be someone whom you know well. Even that word is sometimes used of a spouse, but there are other terms that are used instead of a spouse. But in some places in the prophets, that word that's translated neighbor can refer to the nearest neighbor person who lives inside your own household with you in covenant with you. Now this is because of the reference to the legal context. It does not mean that it does not apply to other contexts. It's this sin that is singled out and you can see disobedience to this very commandment in scripture. But It certainly has a range of application that extends far beyond, really that goes to all deception that would bring harm. We'd have to qualify that if we got down to the details of it, but deception for the sake of misleading intentionally to bring harm to someone in an evil way and then lying specifically statements that are misleading with the intent to harm. Came across this week a book that uh, had not seen. It was a sort of a analysis of Generation Z. There's Generation X before those, the baby boomers, the millennials. Generation Z is those who were born from 1999 to 2015. And there's analysis of different differences between these generations as well as an explanation of what Generation Z is all about. One of the points that the authors made was that there is quite a bit of screen usage whether 
phone or tablet or some other screen, there's quite a bit of screen usage to the point where one person dubbed this generation screen-agers instead of teenagers or i-gen. But the thing that caught my attention was how this generation, at least in terms of a national representation, this is a survey that was done in the United States, how they viewed truth, but then specifically lying. And comparing the generations, there has been a degradation. There's been a dropping in what lying is considered to be. Is it morally wrong? Is it okay in certain contexts? From baby boomers to Generation X to millennials to Generation Z, it was 54% to 50 to 42 to 34 34% of Generation Z, according to this survey, view lying as morally wrong. Now, not necessarily talking about those who are within the household of faith. I would expect a national representation would include some. And to a certain extent, people use statistics to prove just about anything, and so I'm not trying to put a big weight upon this particular survey. But do we believe, do you believe, that it is a sin to lie? This commandment certainly teaches that it's a sin to lie. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is God speaking, the God of truth the infinite, eternal God who promises to punish what is evil. Man is made in God's image, the scripture teaches, and if man does other than tell the truth, his very action portrays a lie about God. I said it last week, but just as a reminder, lying does destroy your dignity as a creature made in God's image. God is a truth teller. He's a God of truth. Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it, or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? It is impossible, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, for God to lie. He always tells the truth. He cannot lie. So for a creature who is made in his image to tell a lie is to mar and mangle that image. It's a distortion of who God is when someone made in his image lies. And what does the scripture teach about us? Psalm 58 and verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those, These who speak lies go astray from birth. As we're born into this world, we are associated because of our connection with Adam, our sinfulness inherited from Adam. And then, of course, our connection with the devil as well. We are, we are liars. We come from a family of lies and the father of lies. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature. One kind of interesting... Uh, descriptive translation of that is he speaks his own native language when he lies. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, that text says Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. That could be a reference to what happened between Cain and Abel as Cain killed his brother. But it's also that through his lie, he brought destruction 
and death took away life in one sense from the human race because he lied, suggesting that God's command not to touch the tree or to eat of the tree rather was unreasonable. He tried to lead Eve to think falsely and he boldly contradicted God's word. You will not surely die. And what happened? Well, she took and gave to her husband, and yes, they did die spiritually. They would die physically. Apart from God's redemption, they would die the second death. The devil boldly contradicted God's words. He misrepresented the truth. And what is true for all liars? Apart from redemption they will find their place where the devil ends up as well. In fact, someone said, every liar is a child of the devil and will be sent home to his father. So lying destroys your dignity as a creature made in God's image. It associates you with the father of lies, destroys your trust, trustworthiness. Proverbs twenty-five eighteen. Like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in a time of trouble. Not only the danger of lying, but what lying does to your reputation. Makes you untrustworthy. If you have a bad tooth you're eating food, you're not going to want to chew where that bad tooth is. You're going to want to avoid that. If you have a, an unsteady foot, as how it's translated, a, literally a foot that slips, you're not going to put that foot forward to put all your weight upon. And a faithless person or someone who does not tell the truth is not going to be trusted after you've lied and that's been shown, it does have an impact. It has an effect. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven, but it may mean after you lie and even repeatedly that you're not going to be trusted. And the reality is all of us fall into this category. We're all sinners. We are all liars. Praise God for his forgiveness. Praise the Lord that God speaks the truth, and he is able to be trusted. He is trustworthy. The psalmist says, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. He keeps faith forever. God is a truth-teller. He speaks the truth. He can be relied upon. As God's people, we need to certainly repent of our lying and become more by His grace and by His Spirit like the Lord Jesus, truth-tellers. Now, another point about lying that I want to take a little time to develop is that lying is oftentimes entangled with other sins. It's not just lying. It's other sins that take place, and sometimes the lying is a means of covering it up. I want to ask you to turn back to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to put some, I want to put some flesh and bones into this study. I don't want to take a long time with any of these examples, but as we go through, I just want to draw attention to some of these other sins entangled with lying. If we find ourselves lying, it may not be the only thing. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 11. This is Abraham, Sarai, Abram and Sarai says in verse 11, it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai's wife, see now, I know that you're a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now what he's asking Sarai to do is actually tell a half-truth. She was his sister, half-sister. But it wasn't the whole truth because she was also his wife. And so his asking her to do that led to what? Look at verse 14. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Okay, now... What is going on here is bigger than just a lie, just bigger than protecting Abram's life. God has made a covenant with Abram, and what is taking place actually threatens that covenant. I think that's part of what explains some of these stories that you see in this section in Genesis, is God has made a promise to bless all the nations through Abram, through his seed. And now... There's a threat to that because his wife, who has not born a child yet, is now taken into the household of a pagan, and it's because of this lie. Now, does his lie bring about disadvantage? Well, it certainly brought some disadvantage to Sarah. But look at verse 17 as well. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So not only did he tell her, but now Pharaoh confronts him. He had also said, She is my sister. That wasn't the whole truth. Pharaoh says, So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belong to him. What is going on here? Well, among other things, Abraham is failing to trust in God, and he's afraid of man. He's fearful, and as a result of his fear, he's asking his wife to lie, and he's lying himself. The fear of man brings a snare, the Scripture says. One of the reasons that people lie, that we lie, is fear, fear of man. And it's also a failure to trust in the Lord. Now, we're going to go over to Genesis 20, but on our way there, look at Genesis 15. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. The Lord reiterates the promises. Abraham actually places faith in the Lord, according to that chapter. That is the place where he trusts in the Lord's word, and it's reckoned to him righteousness. But turn over to Genesis chapter 20. So we have God coming to Abram and telling him, among other things, I'm a shield to you. He also told him, I'm God Almighty. But look at Genesis chapter 20. Verse 1, now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Once again, was this his intent? He was interested in saving his own skin, but what he did was jeopardize his wife Jeopardized his marriage. His wife is taken into another man's home. Verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? 
didn't he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. What does this tell us? That Abraham's lied again. Sarah has lied again. Even though significant time has passed, they're still fearful, and their response to fear, rather than trusting in God, is to lie, to try to protect themselves by themselves by telling something that's not true. And now they have put an innocent man... I believe we have this testimony in this passage that Abimelech was not, he, had, he knew the facts before he took her, at least he thought he did. The mouth of two or three witnesses, well, what did they say? They said this is a brother-sister relationship. Look at verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. I also have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now you don't have as much of the conversation between Abraham and Pharaoh, but here it's extended and you have some of Abraham's reasoning. Look at what he says, verse 11 Well, verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Verse 11, Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, rationalization, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Abraham is rationalizing his lie. Do you ever do that? You, you say something that is technically true, but it's not the whole story, and you rationalize, well, what I said was true. It just wasn't everything. That's what he's doing here. And, of course, what he omitted was the most important fact, which if Abimelech knew, apparently, based on even the dream that he had and his own actions, he would not have taken her into his household. Verse 13 And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. This is a premeditated lie. It's a premeditated attempt to deceive, putting words in Sarah's mouth, encouraging her to lie, which effectively was Abraham's lie. So fear rationalizing, subtly, one person said, subtly blaming God. Look at verse 13. It came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. What God? Well, this is the everlasting God. This is the almighty God. This is the God who would be a shield to him. So if God caused him to wander... Why would he not trust? And Abraham's faith, we know Abraham had faith. So there's trust, but there's growing trust, and it's not complete and perfect trust. And at those times where he has unbelief and isn't trusting, instead he's lying. Lies come because of a lack of faith and trust in God. And they come sometimes, and again, the context here is because of the fear of man. Now, Sarah is included here. Sarah's been put in jeopardy a couple of times. Turn back to chapter 18. Going back just a little bit to look at a conversation. Remember the Lord came to Abraham. Abraham showed hospitality to him. Brought food for the Lord and the angels say, how does that work with angels eating food, the Lord eating? Scriptures don't tell us it's not the point. 
verse 9, it says, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, literally within herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I think we're getting a sense of, from what the Lord is speaking to Abraham about here that Abraham has either not communicated to Sarah what's taking place, but even if he has, she is not believing it. And she needs to believe it. And so does Abraham. In fact, the Lord uses the name of Sarah. If you notice that in verse 9, it's not Sarai any longer, it's Sarah. The name Sarah reflects the promise. And Sarah is the one who's going to have a child. But Sarah needs to believe that. Abraham and Sarah need to obviously get together. And Sarah, even at the thought of it, laughs within herself. But look at what verse 15 says. Well, let me, let me step back. Verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The Lord can see someone's heart. He can see laughter in the heart as well as he can see laughter when somebody laughs out loud. Sarah may be in the tent laughing in her heart, but the Lord saw it and he sees it. And even though she denies it because of embarrassment and her own lack of faith, the Lord saw that. So there's a family here that's certainly a family of faith, and yet... There are lies, lies because of the fear of man, lies that they're rationalizing, lies because they're not trusting in the Lord. Now, if you follow the story of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see Isaac struggling with the very same thing. Turn over to Genesis chapter 26. Look at verse 6. So Isaac lived in Gerar, Genesis 26, 6. Verse 7, when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, this is not Abraham and Sarah anymore, this is Isaac and Rebekah. He said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he'd been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah, playfully showing love in such a way that's not a brother and sister relationship. That's what his conclusion was. Verse 9, then Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, certainly she's your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. You can see Isaac's reasoning very similar, almost exact to his father's. There's a generational influence here. Certainly because we inherit sin from Adam, we're all sinners, but you can learn also by observation. I'm not saying it doesn't seem that Isaac was witness to any of those lies that were told before he was even born. And yet you find him doing the very same thing. In my Bible, over chapter 27, it says Jacob's deception. That's the heading in the next chapter. This family 
of faith also failed. Deception, lies, lack of trust in God, rationalization. Jacob's is pretty bold. If you read the story of Genesis 26 and 27, you'll see, or excuse me, 27 and, and following in Jacob's life, you'll see Jacob was very bold in his lie to his own father. Look at verse 1, Genesis 27. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow. Go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. And if you know this story, you know Rebecca's listening in and she wanted the blessing for her favorite son, Jacob, and so she devises a plan to make the same taste of food and to put forward Jacob in a very deceptive way so as to make Isaac think that this is his son Esau so that Jacob could obtain the blessing instead of his brother. And what happens? Well, look down at verse 18. The plan is in action. The food has been made. Jacob comes to his father, verse 18, and then he came to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, Lie, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please sit and eat of my game, that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? Okay, so Isaac thinks there's something odd here. You can tell as the story progresses, there's a number of things odd. But he can't see so as to show that this really is not Esau. But how does he have it so quickly? End of verse 20. And he said, because the Lord, he actually invokes God's name here, your God caused it to happen to me. God brought it to me. Lie. Then Isaac said, verse 21, to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. He suspects. So Jacob came close to his father And he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Something's up. Something's wrong. Verse 23, he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate, and he also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said. And he gives him the blessing. See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. And Jacob went through the whole thing. Received the blessing. Lied to his father repeatedly. Invoked God's name and said God had done something for him, which God did not do. Now this is the plan of his mother. But he followed through. You don't have to lie. Sarah didn't have to lie because Abraham asked her. Jacob did not have to lie because his mother asked him. But in the process here, Jacob deceives his father, taking advantage of his blindness. He lied and blasphemed God's name in the process. A child boldly lying to his father about his identity for the purpose of obtaining material blessings 
ultimately from God. Now, there's just a real basic application here, children. Have you lied to your parents? Have you deceived them in some way? Something that you've never cleared up, something that you ought to confess to them what you have done and ask for their forgiveness. I never really see in Jacob's life that he ever took care of this. But it is the right thing if you have lied and deceived to take care of it, to make it right. You say when in life? When in life? Well, I said child, but don't be thinking it's just the fact that you're younger. Remember having to go to my dad and confess some things, and my other brothers at different times had to go to dad and confess some things that they had said and done. And over time, as my dad shared with me, he had to go to his dad in his adult life and talk to his dad. Now, are there going to be consequences? Well, the blessing as it's given is on Jacob. That can't be revoked. In fact, when Esau comes in and realizes what happens, has happened, he can't get it. It's already been given. But God is a God of justice. God is a God of recompense. And God loves his children. God's grace came to Jacob, but God's grace also would teach Jacob. And for the deceiver, as Jacob was, the supplanter, God allowed him to go to a home where he was deceived himself. Because where does Jacob go? He goes to Laban's household. His mom's brother. Same family. Same deceptive ways. Without going into all of those details, he goes into a household where now he's deceived in the very first big picture we see is he'd asked for Rachel and he gets Leah. Talk about a deception. And he's angry, but now he's getting a taste of his own medicine. And not only with regard to Rachel and being given Leah instead, eventually he was given Rachel, but then Laban changed his wages repeatedly tried to cheat him out, deceive him out of the wealth that eventually God gave to Jacob. One person wrote, Jacob was cheated out of his wages, cheated out of his wife, cheated, cheated, and cheated again, ten times cheated, that too by his mother's own brother, till cheating came out of Jacob's nostrils and stank in his eyes and became as hell, uh, hateful as hell to Jacob's heart. But that's not the end of the story. Because this same young man who lied to his father, what happened later in life? His own children lied to him. They lied to him about Joseph. There is deception running through this family of faith. The heart is more deceitful, Jeremiah said, than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. When we lie, there's a God in heaven who sees and knows. And yes, there can be forgiveness. There is forgiveness if we call upon God and ask him for forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that there will be no consequences. There are consequences. How God works that out, we can see in the life of Jacob clearly. Sometimes we see very directly how God brings consequences to lies. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 5. Just still trying to put some skin and bones on this subject in a way that we can see. 2 Kings chapter 5. You know the story of Gehazi. We oftentimes focus on Naaman and his healing as he washed himself in the river. But there's a story at the end of that story 
after Naaman comes to the God of Israel, believes the word of the prophet, is cleansed in the Jordan according to the command of the prophet, but then offers to Elisha a gift. Look at verse 15 of 2 Kings chapter 5. This is after his healing, after Naaman's healing. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. What kind of a present? Well, look back at verse 5. Naaman was a soldier. He was under the command of a king, the king of Aram. The king of Aram was concerned about Naaman and sent a gift with him, money with him, as well as clothes. Look at verse 5. As he tells Naaman to go in the first place, it says, Then the king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. As if money would secure this healing transaction from this prophet in Israel that they had come to hear about. So in verse 15, at the end of the verse, when it says, So please take a present from your servant now, It's all that stuff that's available. All that silver, all that gold, those ten changes of garments or clothes. But Elisha responds in verse 16. He said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Elisha, as a prophet of God, he was not a prophet for hire. He did not perform this healing for money. The Lord did it. He knew it. He wasn't going to take anything. And so Naaman asks for something else, and I'm going to step over that part. Look at verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, or he said, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Okay, so you get the idea that Gehazi's greedy. He wants this wealth. And he really is running. Verse 21, so Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Verse 22, he said, All is well. My master has sent me saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. So he has a very precise story that's completely untrue, and he has a very precise objective. His objective is that silver and those garments. Now, I don't know how much exactly that weighed, as I did a little research on the talents, I saw in one place in 1 Kings that two talents were used to purchase a piece of property. So we're not talking about a minimal amount here, significant amount. And he's not going to carry them back. That becomes a problem. Instead of him carrying them, the servants of Naaman are going to carry them. Look at verse 23. Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents, and he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. Now that seems odd, doesn't it? Unless he's just trying to hide. He's lied to Naaman. He's made up a story, but now he's got to lie to Elisha. So lies tend to breed lies. It's really easy to tell one, but then you have to tell another one to cover that up or to kind of weave whatever structure you can so that this is believable. If you're going to get away with it in man's sight, you'll never get away with it in God's sight. But he takes these bags, he takes the changes of clothes. When he came to the hill, verse 24, it says, he took them from their hand, deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. 
But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Now the problem is, if you read the stories of Elisha, Elisha's called a seer. He could see things that others couldn't see because God gave him a sight of them. He could see the angels up on the hillside when the city was surrounded and his master, his servant was all concerned, but he could see that he was really protected. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. And when the servant's eyes were open, he could see what Elisha could see. Well, God gave Elisha a sight. And even though this is over the hill and down by the chariot, notice what Elisha says. Did not my heart go with you and the man turn from his chariot to meet you? He saw that. Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Gehazi's greed or his covetousness, he obtained what he wanted. He got the silver, he got the clothes, but what else did he get? He got leprosy for himself and the future generations of his family. Look at verse 27. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Why such a judgment? Because Gehazi is worshiping another god. Covetousness, Scripture says, is idolatry. He has committed idolatry. He has valued what he wanted over the testimony of the God of Israel. There's a question now in Naaman's mind as Naaman goes back. Was this about the money? No, it wasn't about the money, but he did want that money at the end. And Elisha, his purpose was to just say, no, I don't want anything. Gehazi's clouded that because of his own idolatry and covetousness. And he is feeling the effects. He's lying because of his covetousness. He's also lying because of his fear of the man of God. We could go on. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Who for the sake of recognition by the church, they lied about what they gave. They presented this gift to the apostles. They laid it at the apostles' feet. And in the context, it looked like they had sold a piece of land and were giving everything to the Lord, just like Barnabas had, just like others had. But the reality was they were not worshiping God. They were wanting recognition from man, and so they lied. They made a public presentation. And Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied unto men. You've lied to God. Do people ever lie for the sake of recognition, forever the sake of pride? For the sake of being looked upon in the eyes of others? With favor or with admiration? Of course they do. I say, of course they do. We all do that. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 32. The back story or the background of David's confession here is his sin with Bathsheba. He had seen her while she was bathing. He'd acted upon his lust. He took her, slept with her. When she became pregnant, he tried to cover it up by bringing Uriah home, arranging circumstances so that Uriah might think this is his child, but when Uriah was a man of honor and wouldn't follow through with that, David had him killed And then he took Bathsheba into his household as a perceived act of kindness and 
comfort for this woman. And for months, months, David did not confess his sin. The Lord, when eventually he was confronted, said, you did this thing secretly. David was trying to hide, hide, hide. He was lying about it, not open about it, not confessing it. But when he finally comes to confess it, notice what it says in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. What a blessing forgiveness is to know the cleanliness of God's cleansing and that provision ultimately through Christ. Verse 3, but he describes his circumstance prior to that. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. So God is pressing down upon him in his physical life in such a way that he's depressed. He doesn't have strength. And finally, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, it was more than just lying, but I'm saying that lying is oftentimes entangled with other sins. David was the king of Israel. Of course, he wouldn't want this sin to become public, these sins to become public. But the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And the Lord had seen this, and it displeased the Lord. And so he presses David down. And if you read through 2 Samuel chapter 12, you see that it's right about the time that child is born that David is brought to confess. And then the Lord's working in his heart. There is a blessing in coming clean. It may not just be a lie. It may be other things too. The Lord is able to cleanse us from all of our sin. What does He say if we confess our sin? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's sometimes what we're doing. It's not just that we're lying to other people. We're lying to ourselves. We're so good at deception, sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that I don't need to get this right. No, you do need to get it right. God already knows. Psalm 15, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Yes, there is forgiveness, but sin must be repented of. When is sin repented of? When you act. It's not just because of something you say or something you think. When you act and change and turn from your wicked ways. Sin, yes, repented of. There is something that takes place in our heart, but real repentance is seen in the life so that someone who is lying now becomes a truth teller. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is giving instructions to these believers about living a life in Christ. Verse 20, after he's confronted a number of sins, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. 
If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in according with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay, you're putting on the new self. You're putting on Christ, in other words. And what's the first thing that he says? Now he's talking about this life where you're learning Christ, you're seeking to put off the old man, be renewed, put on the new man. What's the very first application that he makes? Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. That's repentance, laying it aside. That's what the old man, the old woman, that's what... I used to be. That's not what I am any longer. And if I ever see it in my life, I need to put it off. If I ever find myself again acting like the old Joel, put your name in the blank, I need to put that off. I need to deal with it as sin. I need to put on righteousness. I need to speak the truth. I was talking with someone recently who, in their childhood, had stolen a baseball, brand new baseball, somebody's store, I believe it was. Did not see the family that owned that store until a special event when he was an adult. But when he saw them, he knew that he had sinned against them. And he said, he went over to them, actually went over to the woman, I don't know if the husband was there, but he said, when I was a young person, I stole something from you. And he pulled out his wallet, and he said, based on what I think I, it was worth and what it would be worth now, I want to repay you for that. He made it right. Now, I want to be careful, because you may not be able to make right everything that you've done. There are some times when someone has lived such a life of sin or been so engrossed in a life of sin that you can't, you maybe not even be able to remember everything. But as you lay aside falsehood and speak the truth, if God is convicting your heart, you need to speak to somebody, you need to do that. Maybe it is a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Reestablish that right relationship between you. Zechariah 8, from which Paul gets his text here. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love perjury for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. And as you speak the truth, you can pray that God will help you Psalm 141, David gives a request to the Lord. He says, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. There's a little booklet called The Tongue, Our Measure, in which the preacher gives an exposition of that verse and some verses in James. And he says there are four soldiers that ought to guard our mouth. Verity, charity, necessity, and wisdom. And if a word comes to the door of our mouth and doesn't align up with each one of those, that word should not come out. Verity, is it true? Charity, is it loving? Necessity, is this necessary for me to say? And then wisdom, is this wise? That's a prayer. Lord, set a watch. Do for me what I don't always do for myself. And if I should ever allow something to get out, I've allowed something to get out, may the Lord help me to go to that person, ask for their forgiveness, make sure my relationship is right with them. Lie not to one another. We're members of one another. There are many other reasons. Ultimately, we stand before God, who's a witness to all our words. Praise the Lord that if we confess, there is forgiveness.
with Christ. There's forgiveness for the lies that we tell. If we have sinned against him and turn from that, he is willing to forgive. But if we refuse to repent, if you do not turn from your sin, Revelation 21.8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. God will not be mocked, and he knows. He calls all men to repent and turn to Jesus Christ, find forgiveness in him. Let's pray. Lord, it is sobering to consider the truth. We thank you that you are willing to forgive, but you do call us to repentance. And I don't know, Lord, all that you are doing in the hearts here, but we pray that your spirit would do his work that we might be a people who speak the truth, who love the truth. We might be a people of truth. Lord, just like you saw Gehazi, just like you saw David, just like you saw Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, you see us, each one of us, and know our life. Help us not to deceive ourselves into thinking that you don't. And help us to turn from our sin and begin speaking the truth. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.